Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale, seaburycapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to the Spirit Frontier Airlines Confidential Podcast. Uh, just kidding there. We're going to talk more about that this week, but just from the mailbag, obviously lots of people are talking about that news. This is Chris Chimes. Thanks for dialing in. And of course, I'm joined as always by my shy and unassuming co-host, Ben Beldanza. Hey, Chris, and hey, listeners. Shy and unassuming are two words not usually used to describe me, although I probably would be wise to be a little more shy and unassuming once in a while but probably not today. Okay, then let's get right to it. We'd already recorded last week's show before the Spirit Frontier merger was announced. To recap, in case anyone slept through that news, Frontier has proposed the acquisition of Spirit for the price of $2.2 billion. That would give Frontier a 51.5% controlling interest. The merged company would be valued at $6.6 billion and would be the fifth largest airline in the U.S. behind... American United, Delta, and Southwest. There's no indication yet of a brand name or who would run the merged operation or a headquarters site. Both carriers fly in all Airbus fleets, so strong synergies there. When announced, the companies pledged no job losses and claimed it would create 10,000 new jobs. Executives pointed to minimal overlap of networks and synergies would save $500 million per year in expenses. And they claim that the deal would generate $1 billion in consumer savings per year. So having been to this rodeo a few times, these claims are straight from the Merger 101 playbook. Step one, make sure you point out all the great consumer and employee benefits of the merger. <laughs> ben, where does this deal go from here to achieve the year enclosure they want to make? So Ben, before you respond to that, just a note to our listeners here. Ben sits on the board of a publicly traded airline, and he is also still a shareholder in spirit. So he's going to respond to this in a way that's appropriate, and I'll let him take it from there. Thanks, Chris. Well, you're right about this being from the Merger 101 playbook. Everything about this announcement is the positive side of this deal. More jobs, lower fares, savings. Not quite sure how they get that billion dollar in consumer savings, but I imagine they did something like look at our average fare versus the legacy average fares. And if we grow and we take the number of people who pay that much less, you can get to a billion dollars, that sort of thing. But from here, a couple things have to happen. First of all, the Justice Department has to agree to not sue the merger. We all know, or our listeners know at least, that right now the Justice Department is suing American and JetBlue to not implement their Northeast Alliance. And that would go to trial later this year. So the Justice Department's going to have to say, we think this is okay. And what does the Justice Department look at? They look at competition. So they look at how many routes go from two airlines serving it to only one, how many go from three to two, four to three, things like that. When you remove an airline from the competitive space, admittedly you're merging these two, but today Spirit and Frontier compete in some markets. When you remove that, how much does choice for consumers reduce? That's one thing the Justice Department looks at. The other thing they look at is prices. Will consumers pay more over time because of this consolidation? When the consolidations that happened between 2008 and 2012, the Delta Northwest, Southwest AirTran, Continental United, and then lastly, American U.S. Airways, when those deals happened, there was a sense, I think, that fares probably would go up some but that the industry would be a lot more stable and there wouldn't be these as many um, really cash 
terrible fair wars and things like that. But the Justice Department, I think, got a sense after each one of those mergers is it seemed right at the time, but we're not quite sure if we like that the four biggest airlines in the U.S. now carry 80% of the travelers or 60% or, you know, that number's moved as we've talked about on this show. So we now have an administration that doesn't talk as positively about big business as the prior administration. And undoubtedly, I think, will ask the Justice Department to look really carefully at this. Is Are we really sure we want more consolidation in an industry that got a lot of tax benefit from the government, that generally is not perceived as the most consumer-friendly industry, that's had lots of operational challenges, right? And so I I think that's not um, a slam dunk. They pointed out, they meaning Spirit Frontier, pointed out all the positives of this and the things that are good. More consumer savings, no, we're not going to increase fares, we're going to add jobs, and those are all good things. But the Justice Department is going to look beyond just their statements and really look almost route by route and say, how does this affect the Denver market, the Fort Lauderdale market, the Dallas market, the Orlando market, the Las Vegas market, and what does that mean? The other thing that has to happen, as you know, Chris, is that the shareholders of each company have to approve this deal. To approve this deal, they're going to have to believe that the shares they own are going to do better in this merged entity. And that's something that I'm not going to say behind the scenes, but as another path from the Justice Department piece that the airlines are going to have to market well to their biggest shareholders that we believe it's in your interest to make this happen. And then the third thing is the labor side. And while labor at each airline, specifically the, you know, the pilots and the flight attendants and the mechanics. While those groups can't stop the merger in the sense of, of, you know, they can't make it not happen, them sort of arguing against it or pushing against it could make it difficult and likely in an administration that is very labor friendly might bias the government about what it wants to do. So my point is they've put together this acquisition opportunity and they've put out all the things that are great about it. And you can argue that they're probably right about all those things too. But The Justice Department has to approve it. The shareholders have to approve it. And ultimately, the labor groups at each airline have to believe that they're that they're not being harmed as part of this whole thing. So we'll see over the months what happens here and how this goes. But these processes are never quick and mergers are never easy, but sometimes they do good things. And we'll see if this is one of them. Look, there's a story behind the story that you and I and most of our listeners probably aren't privy to, but I do think some of their claims and analysis would have had a little more credibility if they had dealt with some of the obvious questions that are usually announced with the merger, like what's going to be the name of the new company? Who's going to run the company? Where's the company going to be headquartered? They were very vague about all those kinds of things that are are sometimes the hardest to work out with regard to ego. And so a lot of times deals fail or succeed based on some of those things. So if they had come out with a little more detail on some of the obvious ones, perhaps their analysis would have a little more strength as well. I'll I'll just say that. So, I think you're right about that. You know, the deals that have been done in this industry, the consolidation and merger deals, I mean, one of the common traits of all of them is by the time of the deal, you had one side that was sort of willing to cede control and step back. And so you're right. Without having all of those announcements yet, it suggests that maybe those things aren't all worked out. And that just creates another sort of pathing that has to happen here to really get this deal done, especially by the end of the year. Even though we're only in February, end of the year does still seem a little bit aggressive. I'm going to go out on a limb and predict this is not the last time we talk about the Spirit Frontier merger, but uh, we'll, we'll <laughs> go on from right that. right about so, that, Chris. So. <laughs> 
So let's go from a discussion about two airlines that have perfected the ancillary fee revenue generation business model to a full-service carrier that is turning that model sideways a bit. I'm talking about Delta. Late last year, Delta rolled out their flat $5 in-flight Wi-Fi product, which is a really sweet deal when I'm tagged for a $25 for two-hour fee on an unnamed airline that has a hub at DFW. But now they're testing a program to encourage passengers to check their bags for free. In the pilot, select passengers traveling out of Boston, Tampa, and Orlando will get a text four hours prior to departure and be offered a free check bag. So Ben, what do you think they're trying to find out with this test? I think it's fascinating what Delta is doing. I love the flat Wi-Fi price. You know, not a lot of people buy Wi-Fi. And when it's free, lots of people sign in at even minimal charges. Lots of people just don't. And I know what you mean about those really high prices for just an hour or short thing. And I've been faced with decisions of I'm going to land in an hour and a half. Do I really want to spend this to send a text right now? I guess I'll just wait, right? And the $5 product, I think, is a good idea. And I think it will drive more usage and ultimately produce Delta more revenue than the way they were charging. On the bag piece, I think it's fascinating. I think what they're dealing with is exactly what Spirit was dealing with, you know, 11, 12 years ago when they implemented the carry-on bag fee. They're dealing with lots of bags at the gate that don't all fit on the airplane and having to gate check bags and having to make the announcement of, you know, if you bring your bag up to the counter, we can check it for you free and go through that and put all that pressure at the gate when they're trying to get the plane out. I think they're trying to figure out if they can get some of those people who would have brought their bag up to the gate to be checked when the airline says they need that behavior, I think they want to identify them even earlier and maybe pull some of that behavior away from the gate so that the gate can be more focused on boarding and getting the plane out on time. I would maybe optimistically, the way I think, might think that Delta's thinking about maybe we need to charge for that carry-on bag at some point, but they're probably not doing that, knowing who they are. I bet what they're trying to do is release the pressure at the gate in the airports, and they're picking a couple airports where they're big, where they're important, where they have enough flyers to see, can we really change behavior to get people to agree to check in earlier with their bag when we offer it free, when they didn't buy the bag up front, in order to not have to have the gate do that 30 minutes before flight. Yeah, I was thinking, are they going to offer it to like the guests in like zones one, two, three, four, or more on the back end, the ones who usually have to check their bags in six, seven, eight, nine zones um, because baggage is full. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But I I think uh, you're spot on with regard to what they're trying to do here. Well, Airlines Confidential wants to thank TA Connections, which procures over 30 million rooms annually on behalf of their clients and makes travel management easier and less expensive with AI-powered booking applications and negotiated rate programs. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. And this week's show is also brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and APUs. To help the industry achieve net zero air transport carbon emissions by 2050, Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, cleaner fuels, and greener business. Learn more at prattwhitney.com slash sustainability. Ben, one more news item, Dateline London, or maybe Dateline Brussels, or Paris, or Berlin. I can't figure out where the Dateline is, but COVID has kind of quashed some aspects of Brexit. But one that is starting to pop up like some early spring flowers is airline ownership requirements, and specifically talk that Germany and France are going to push for the enforcement of EU ownership rules which could require IAG to spin off British Airways. Thoughts? I was amazed by this story, and 
it almost reminds me of sort of an international thriller kind of story, <laughs> right? I mean, to think of IAG without British Airways would be like thinking of the Lufthansa group without Lufthansa, right? It's, right. I mean, IAG is British Airways plus the partners that they've been able to cobble together in this, you know, holding company with investments and such. And using Brexit to say that British Airways can't be part of this group that includes non-UK airlines is really fascinating. And I have to believe that it's not only national sovereignty issues driving this. The fact that IAG competes with the Lufthansa group in Germany and with the Sky Team Air France group that's based in Paris, dismantling IAG to some extent or weakening IAG is absolutely good for the German and French airlines. And so I have to believe that this is a huge political thing within Europe right now that maybe they've realized that the Brexit rules make it more difficult to justify the ownership of IAG. I'm sure a lot of lawyers are going to make a lot of money trying to to defend and prosecute sort of different sides of this whole case. But I think we all need to watch this one fairly closely because it means a lot, I think, around competition. Um, the big alliances largely compete against each other for lots of traffic in the world. And if IAG were forced to be just the non-UK airlines, it would make them a much weaker player in the space in that competition. This is a fascinating story, Chris, and one that I bet is going to evolve through the years. So just like Spirit Frontier, we're going to be talking about this again, too, I think. Well, maybe this is what they were talking about at Boris Johnson's parties uh, and all those, all those late night meetings. Yeah, I mean, look, there's as much airline competition in the courtroom as there is at the airfield. So um, I don't think this issue is going to go away. And like you said, we're going to keep talking about it. We'll be right back with Kevin Stamler of Seat Boost. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. The archive.net is now boarding. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and we're very excited to have with us today the founder and CEO of SeatBoost, Kevin Stamler. Kevin, Tell us about your aviation background, including as a flyer. <laughs> well, Ben and Chris, first, thank you very much for having me. I'm an avid listener and I'm honored to be a guest. And I think perhaps I'm your first ever fine or wine, got a fine, and then also a podcast guest. So uh, I'm starting off well. I don't have much background in aviation. Um, beyond being a flyer prior to seat boost, the best I can say is my wife is a travel enthusiast, um, and I am lucky enough to have married up, as uh, some lucky men do. She's always loved planes, and to give you just a really brief story about her, she used to look at Google Flights just like on her off time, just for fun, and try to find deals that were, you know, not really marketed. Um, and one time. I got a call and she said, Kevin, I found a business class flight six months from now for $2,500 round trip to Nairobi. And I said, but we have no plans to go to Nairobi. <laughs> We've never been before. And she said, yep, but we're going now. So, you know, I'm married <laughs> to someone like that. And uh, yeah, that's how I got into flying. So you're uh, here to talk to us about your product Seat Boost. I'm a Martian just landing on Planet Airline. Uh, what is Seat Boost? It depends on Planet Airline if you're a flyer or if you're an airline. But for flyers, Seat Boost is a mobile app that hosts live auctions for seat upgrades where you can bid to change your flight experience sort of on your terms when your flight is top of mind, you know, close to departure um, in the last 24 hours usually. But for airlines, Seat Boost represents a new revenue channel 
and is a demand creation slash collection system. Um, and that's, you know, airlines can gain new insights into pricing in this new time and environment, right? This, this check-in window, and they gain real-time insights into flyer purchasing behavior on their day of flight. So depends who I'm talking to, but yeah, it's, it's a mobile app and kind of system. Kevin, what convinced you this was a product opportunity and was an area that wasn't being exploited yet? Before I started Seatboost, I was in experiential marketing. Um, and so that, that's really my background. I'll tell you a brief story. So, and this is all true. I was, you, you guys remember those um, kiosks where you put in your credit card and it used to spit out your boarding pass before we had mobile boarding passes? Some of, of those still exist, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. I, I haven't used one in quite some time. But anyway, so I input my credit card. I was flying Virgin America from SFO to LAX. And I input my credit card into the kiosk and it got stuck. And I had to get a technician to come and open the machine to like unlock my credit card to get it out. It was very frustrating, as you can imagine. So I'm sitting there, I'm watching all these people, you know, use those kiosks to check in. Virgin America is offering an upgrade at that kiosk and people are saying no thanks about as fast as you would accept, you know, a new, you know, user agreement or something like that on, on you know, or a website cookie thing, right? So I'm thinking in my head, like, this is just a bad place to offer this because everyone's in a rush to get through security, right? Like people aren't really like thinking about this in, at this time. And so I, you know, 30 minutes later, I get my, uh, you know, my, my credit card back. I'm the, I'm the last guy. So I race through security. I run on the plane and I'm walking through business class and there's eight seats. One of them is sat in and seven are empty. And I thought, man, this is so silly because they already have the staff. They already have the, you know, the food and the drinks and everything they need. There should be a way that we can bid and whoever's the highest bidder gets to sit in, uh, in business class. Now, you don't want people bidding on the plane because you don't want people kind of moving around on the jetway. And I, I knew that even though I wasn't, didn't have a background in airlines. But I thought, hey, there should be a mobile app where when you're sitting at the gate, you could bid. And uh, that's sort of how I, I thought of it. And, and just generally speaking, you know, I think that, and this is what we've learned now, people's behavior really changes when they're in the airports. You know, I, I think about an example of, Ben, I'll pose this to you. If an airline offered you the chance to reserve a water, right, at the airport for $3, right, before you, when you were booking, right, I imagine you would not reserve that water for $3 and sort of to add it to your booking, right? I, I wouldn't. I, never would I. Ne never, right? But every time I go to the airport, I buy a water for like $6. And I imagine you do too, right? <laughs> so to me, that just shows that like purchasing behavior really changes. And before security, when people go to the airport, everyone's in just in a rush to get to security. After security, everyone is doing one of two things. They're either sitting, staring at their phone, or they're merchandising with someone who's not the airline, right? Buying coffee at Starbucks or a magazine at Hudson News or whatever. So my thought is, Seatboost can kind of be the bridge where, you know, we can sell upgrades and many other things through this mobile app sort of on behalf of airlines in this time and environment where, you know, people are more focused on their experience and less price sensitive. So let's get back to the mechanics a little bit more, Kevin. Are you sure. bidding with cash, miles, your firstborn child? How do you get these upgrades? Yeah. So usually you're bidding with cash. We have the ability to use other forms of currency like miles, but that we haven't launched that yet. And, uh, you know, it's sort of dependent on if the airline wants it. And thus far, that hasn't come uh, to fruition yet, but it's something that we have capability to do. One, one thing that's cool is, um, you know, the auction is live. So you're seeing real time information about. You know, if Ben outbids you, you can immediately outbid him. And it sort of feels like you're playing a game, 
Um, but of course, you are not spending any money unless you win the upgrade, right? The, there's there's no cost to you. We like to say in Sipus, the floor outcome, the worst outcome is that you get the seat you already had picked or the airline picked for you, right? That's, that's the worst thing that can happen. Look, things get uh, invented because people have great ideas, but if this is such a great idea, why wasn't it out there before? Well... First of all, those are your words that this is a great idea. Uh, <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm giving you an opening there, Kevin. Take yeah, it. sure, sure. That's a good question. I think that, and I would love to hear what you think about this, but I think that a lot of people think selling into the airline industry is virtually impossible. <laughs> and candidly, I felt that to some degree as an outsider, you know, when I started, you know, I think... Um, Innovation is just hard. There's a lot of other, you know, important KPIs beyond revenue, like on-time performance. And I think also that the time and environment that is check-in is sort of like the most sensitive time for airlines, right? You're in the departure control system. There's just a lot of factors that sort of um, tie in. And I think it was, you know, it's really hard in the airline industry to go from zero clients to one. I've sort of done that twice uh, because our first um, partner got bought sort of in the middle of our program. And then um, we signed another one. But, you know, I, I think you just have to kind of get through the getting from zero to one. And then, you know, if you have, if your program works, like thankfully ours does, and you have data to support that, I think um, once you break in, it's, it's easier to sign airlines two, three, and four than it is to sign airline one. That's my view. Well, Kevin, so let's get down to practical things. I'm a customer. I check in. I get through security. I've never heard of seat boost, mm -hmm. but I get to the gate. There's an hour to go, and I hear something about a seat boost auction. What do I mm -hmm. do? You just download the app. A lot of times you'll, you can find it in the airline app. There can be like a button that says upgrade and it'll take you to seat boost. You input your flight details, usually just a confirmation number or e name and email. And again, it doesn't cost you any money. You'll, you'll put in your credit card, but it doesn't cost you any money unless you win the auction. And if you win the auction, we deliver you a new boarding pass right in the app. And it's, you know, I had a compliant, you can scan it and walk on the plane. So there isn't too much friction. If you want to participate, it's, pr it's pretty easy. So you've got a, is it a beta or a pilot with TAP Air Portugal? Tell us about mm -hmm. that and tell us about any conversations you're having with major U.S. carriers. So I can tell you that we're in touch with a lot of carriers um, right now. They're, we're sort of at an inflection point right now. The, the TAP launch was not a beta. Um, it was network-wide with TAP, so sort of a global theater that we were operating in. And the, the data has been overwhelmingly positive. You know, um, we've been able to, most usually an airline's biggest fear, if, if that's the word, is about dilution. Um, and we've demonstrated that there's really no dilution because this is last minute, right? There's no guarantee. And we don't ask TAP to close any other channels prior to the auction closing. So, you know, if this seat is, the, the auction ends five minutes before boarding begins. So if that seat is still empty, it's going as zero, <laughs> you know, it's not going, that's a non-rev seat. So Sifu sort of acts as like a backstop. And I always sort of thought that that would prove no dilution. Sometimes airlines are concerned that this would change behavior of their flyers, right? But I never really bought into that. And, you know, I, I just think that if you're talking about, you know, people who are booking corporate business class, right? Think, think about like a, a secretary booking travel for an executive. I don't think they're going to say, hey, hey, Ben, you know, we booked you in economy, but download this app and maybe you'll win an upgrade if there's availability. Like, I just don't see that as something that's going to happen. And so the vast majority of our users are leisure travelers. The app's theming is all about kind of opportunity and surprise and delight. And so, you know, Seapoos is designed to engage those flyers and we've been really successful doing it. Um, TAP uh, has been a great partner to us and we have a couple other partners that are already 
signed and a couple more that we're in talks with. I can't reveal the names yet, sadly, because they're not officially announced, but uh, we're in implementation with a bunch of other carriers and post-COVID with the pretty significant impact to corporate business travel, SeatBoost has a sort of heightened utility for airlines. Um, I, I believe, and you know, I've listened to a lot of your podcast and I appreciate the free education that I've gotten from Airlines Confidential. It was you know, no student loans. As someone that went to law school, this is a this is a much better option. So yeah, no, um, you know, I've heard a lot of people sort of prognosticate about corporate business travel, right, and and where it's going. And certainly, some large percentage of corporate business travel is going to go into high end leisure. And you know, at that sort of nexus, right, Seat Boost is perfect because airlines are trying to find new ancillary revenue from you know, leisure travelers and SeatBoost is a, is a no touch, no risk digital tool that is sort of perfectly situated between what airlines want and what flyers want. So yeah, does that answer your question? <laughs> Kevin, that, that does. And that's great. Let's go back to tap for a minute because <laughs> you've talked about that. You've got your words, you've got this worldwide, you know, implementation with mm-hmm. tap. It's not a beta. Anytime there's a new product, the likelihood that everything works is just probably zero, right? So what have you, what have you learned from TAP that helps you market this to new airlines? Like what has surprised you to the good and to the bad with oh your my, TAP implementation? Oh my gosh, Ben. How long do you have? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, no, but really like just to go back and think about it, it's just so much. So for one, I'll put these in buckets. Bucket one is just implementation and like sort of technical integration, right? We've been able to shave that time down significantly. Um, Now we can be live with an airline in 60 days, right? So that's a big, big hurdle that we've overcome. And especially in the DCS environment, which is really sensitive and sort of um, a place that, you know, most companies have really not touched, um, you know, to be able to walk into an airline and say, you know, we can be live and producing revenue in 60 days is a really big deal because no airline has extra IT resources laying around, you know? (laughs) So generally speaking, airlines will not have to write a single line of code. We can do implementation with really just one or two people involved. The second thing that I think we overcame um, and this is probably true outside the airline industry, just any app that o- operates in a global environment, you know, we've overcome localization, language, currency issues. The app, I think, is in nine languages. It accepts over 200 forms of currency now. You know, when we first launched with TAP, that was not true. <laughs> and candidly, COVID really allowed us to sort of iterate and plug a lot of the holes that... Um, to your point, we found just by launching um, with a global airline, right? Um, You know, TAP flies to Africa, uh, to South America, to North America. They fly a lot of different places um, and all those cultures behave differently. And, And candidly, guys, like one thing I wanted to say is like, you know, before we launched with TAP, I knew that this would work domestically in the United States, right? I knew guys like Chris and Kevin and Ben would understand sort of what upgrades are and auctions are and mobile apps are, right? But I I wasn't super confident that, you know, uh, like people all around the world would sort of know how to use that. And what really surprised me with TAP was that in the first 30 days, even though admittedly we had many problems, we sold upgrades in every single station that TAP flew, which to me is just astounding. <laughs> you know, we had people in Angola bidding against each other. We had people in Mozambique, in Argentina, in Brazil. And I mean, you know, that to me is what really demonstrated, you know, holy moly, we have, you know, sort of a global product market fit situation in our hands. And the best feedback you can get from any, uh, launch, especially globally, is flyer participation. And we had that from the first day. That's what I think I learned. Um, And it's a really 
the learning that I'm really thankful for and grateful for. But yeah, people all around the world like upgrades and like auctions. So there you go. <laughs> so Kevin, how can an airline get started with you on a low risk basis? We approach every airline partnership with a phased approach, certainly to launch. We did that with TAP. I think the first three weeks, you know, we sort of did like, uh, we worked out as many of the kinks as we could. But to me, the low risk is about resources, right? So as I mentioned before, they don't have to write any code. We can do all of the integration to most GDSs, whether it's Amadeus or Sabre or Travelport or Shares, and then we can roll out on a route-by-route -route basis. It's not like the app automatically, uh, you know, just consumes the entire network. Um, if an airline wants to say, hey, we want to focus on these markets, we can do that. The system that we've created is very flexible. For, for a long time, most of our people in the company were based in Los Angeles, and I used to always say to airlines, like, you know, the app is, is like yoga. It's very flexible, right? And sometimes they'd get a kick out of that. And sometimes they'd be like, what? What are you talking about, Kevin? So we are, you know, we're, we're a, a system that understands that every airline is going to have different needs. So yeah, it, it's always pretty much low risk. And, um, you know, I, I would never think an airline, you know, to create a solution that's one size fits all for every airline. So what would be your point of view as far as how this would work best as like a local manager looking at open seats on a flight, turn the app on, or is it centralized in revenue management at headquarters or, mm -hmm. you know, how far in advance do you have to make these decisions and who do you see as being the decision maker to open up a flight to seat boost? Generally, Chris, those decisions would be made using data in advance. Now our system can turn off and on routes in 30 seconds, right? But I generally like to have a more sophisticated approach to um, measuring what we're doing, right? We can make recommendations based on bidding heuristics and what we're seeing. Um, we obviously share a lot of data with our airline partner. Your question, I think, is a great one about who is the ultimate decision maker at the airline. Sometimes it's revenue management. Sometimes it's sort of the ancillary team. If there is an ancillary team at an airline, oftentimes I've experienced there's tension between those two departments. <laughs> um, I, I sort of think like if the airline wants new non-dilutive ancillary revenue, we can provide it. The way they strategize setting up that network and engaging with the opportunity that we provide is something that we can certainly make recommendations on and we do, but I think it's sort of in every airline might have a different, you know, to your point, decision maker. And, you know, it's sort of based on who uh, is, is wearing the, the crown, I guess, at that, at that point, you know? Well, Kevin, this is fascinating. Early on when you described the product, you talked about it being an environment. And mm -hmm. I was intrigued by that word. So as we wrap up here, give us a sense as to what you think seat boost could be beyond just a seat upgrade for an airline. Yes, absolutely. So Ben, this is really core to what we're doing. And it all has to do with this, this time and environment, which you said, it's like, I describe it as check-in, but not using check-in as a man, I was not an English major, not using check-in as a verb, uh, but using it as a place in time, right? So, you know, that period of, let's say, between 24 hours to departure, that period of time, as mentioned before, flyer behavior really changes, right? You could buy at Hudson News the blanket that, you know, that, that they sell, I think, for like $39. You could buy it on Amazon for $5 the day before, right? but nobody does. And I, I mean, I don't know how many blankets Hudson News sells, but it's a lot, right? And so airlines are a little bit hamstrung in the airports because they have, you know, the tools that airlines have are gate agents, which frankly have other priorities, right? I mean, they have to get the planes off on time. On-time performance is very important. They have to screen passengers and, and they're just not expert marketers, right? Since everyone in the airport is either merchandising or looking at their phone, or and not only in the airport, but in an Uber on the way to the airport, right? I think that Seapoos can provide 
many more things beyond just upgrades, whether it's lounge passes, a fast pass through the airport, Wi-Fi on the plane. Seafoos is the merchant of record for the transaction, right? So we already have your credit card and we just can make very quick offers like, you know, quick buy now. I want to add it to, I want to add a fast pass to my PNR and it's boom, it's there. It's an instantaneous transaction. And I just think, you know, there is a different value proposition for the customer when you can engage and merchandise with an airline, but you can get a deal, right? I think it feels better for the for the customer. I think Seafoos presents a new opportunity. It's like, you know, hey, we can, you know, get you a deal on this upgrade or we can get you a deal on getting into the lounge. And that is something that is is important to airlines and engaging for customers. You know, you you have zone five on your boarding pass. You see this crying baby you're going to have to sit next to and coach. Like I can change your experience, right? And I think that's powerful. But I think well, you're I- right, Kevin, that any airline that has differential seating, mm-hmm. we know where there's at least some seats that are better than others. Correct. Every airline for which that's true is every day going to have the issue that some of those seats are going to be empty. Mm-hmm. So that just creates a universe of opportunity to try to market at a time and in a way where you might get some money for them. Mm-hmm. So that is the right basis, I think, to start Seat Boost. You're right. And if you can sell other things afterwards, heck, in a, in a heavily delayed flight, you could have people bidding to get one of the only three seats out on the one plane that's going or something. So, so Ben, Ben, listen to this. Our best i feel guilty saying this but it's absolutely true when we were live at virgin america we were live in sfo and as you know so many sfo flights are delayed because of the fog and our app automatically extends the auction so if a delay is announced right and it's two hours delayed two hours get added to the timer right it's that it's it's algorithmic it's automatic right those were our best friends because people, anytime there was a delay, I mean, people get more frustrated. They look around the airport more, they get more stress, right? They're like, oh my God, I need this upgrade. So yes, I mean, it's super great. I mean, delays really, um, I, you know, I don't want to be profiting off delays, but you know, it, it certainly is meaningful um, and it's helpful to the airline. And to your point also, I wanted to make one other brief point, but um, you know, airlines are, often selling branded fares and a lot of discount branded fares allow you uh, the the passenger not to pick a seat right you're you're not allowed to choose your seat and you get it at check-in but a lot of airlines especially leisure ones are selling so many discounted branded fares that they're having to settle people who you who bought a, a discount um rbd right in a premium seat or a better seat, perhaps not business class, but maybe it's premium economy or something like that. And so, yeah, if Seatboost can get the airline some of that money back, right, by by offering them a better experience and um, engaging them in a way that's, you know, more dynamic and interesting when the t- when, when they're thinking about it most. Yeah, I think that's a win-win and it, it solves kind of a new need for airlines because, you know, I don't know, 15 years ago, not everyone was selling branded fares and everyone picked a seat. But that has changed dramatically in the last few years. I mean, do do you see it the same way, right? I'd imagine. Yeah, I do see it the same way. And I'll tell you, Kevin, what I like about what you're doing as someone who obviously has thought a lot about ancillary revenue and ways (laughs) airlines can collect more beyond the ticket price. Most of the things that airlines sell in ancillary revenue are things people pay, but they're not necessarily excited about paying it. Totally. Right? You pay your bag fee because you want to check a bag. You'd rather the bag was free, of course, right? Mm-hmm. And even with Wi-Fi on board and things, what's different about this is I can imagine, I mean, I've not participated in the seat boost auction. But mm-hmm. I can imagine that if I'm bidding on it and I'm willing to spend the money that I'm bidding to get that nicer seat, mm-hmm. I'm going to be really jazzed and excited when I win and get to pay that money for the better seat. Yeah. And I don't know that there's a lot of opportunities in ancillary revenue where that fact might yeah. be the case. So, so Ben, 
that you're now you're speaking my language, right? My background is experiential marketing. I, um, I care probably too much about what you just said. I try to get airlines to care about that. You know, when I, uh, when I have a meeting with an airline, um, I have a presentation that I present, right? And, you know, most of it's about data and revenue and uh, the opportunity and, you know, all the, all the features that our product has, right? But my favorite slide in this, in this presentation is a slide that shows all these people who have one seat boost upgrades and they're holding their phone and they're smiling and like taking a selfie with their windscreen. And I, and I say to airlines, look, like I, don't, I can't quantify this to you because I don't know how you quantify it yourselves. I don't know how you measure this. But this is something that is potentially revolutionary because to your point, Ben, every other piece of ancillary revenue engenders at best a, you know, a, a neutral brand interaction, right? But when you feel like you won something in a seat boost auction, which you do, I mean, it's not just feel, you actually win, right? You're competing and you win. Um, you know, I have hundreds of pictures and videos, maybe thousands of pictures and videos of people who just want spent, you know, sometimes a four digit number, right? A thousand dollars or something on an upgrade and they're beaming, they're holding their phone, smiling ear to ear, like, oh my God, I won. And that is distinguishable to your point from every other piece of airline, you know, ancillary revenue. I, you know, I, I, I'm not here to criticize uh, airlines. Of course, there are partners and I understand ancillary revenue is very important, but I do agree with you that that's a big deal. And, and that's why SeatBoost is designed to, you know, engage, to, you know, sort of have these elements of surprise and delight that I talked about before. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show, telling us about this interesting product. Be interesting to see if this becomes popular within the U.S. and around the world as I continue to travel and uh, have started traveling more like many people, I think now. I'll be looking for signs about this, looking for airlines who might be promoting it. And we wish you the best of luck. Thanks a lot for coming on the show. Well, thank you both, Ben, Chris. Like I said, I'm an avid listener. Regardless of my fortunes and how they manifest in the in the future of Seatboost, you have me as a listener uh, forever. That I can, that I can promise. I love this show. I've gotten a free education, and you guys are the best. Although I just want to say to Chris, I think you could be a little softer as the judge in finer wine, just a touch, because I feel. <laughs> I feel like, you know, not all these flyers know the game as well as you, you know, so you just got to, you just got to remember that, but that's okay. I was the softy compared to Ben, so. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like when I hear it from Ben, Ben is maybe tougher to your point, but Chris, I always feel like I get a touch of like disappointment. Like, come on, man, you should have known that. And I'm like, you know. <laughs> Anyway, thanks to you both, and uh, I wish you the best, and we'll stay in touch. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We hope you all enjoyed that chat with Kevin Stamler. Now it's your turn and time for listener questions. Remember, you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, while we got more than a dozen questions about the Spirit Frontier merger, I think we've covered that as much as we're going to this week. So let's move on. Charles from Mississippi wrote us saying, guys, take a listen to the SkyWest earnings call. They're advising a 10 to 15% reduction in flight hours for 2022, including 5% for Q1. So that means 15 to 20% for Q2 through Q4. The majors are hiring all the regional captains, and that's starting to impact operations, and it's going to get much worse. 
I'm not sure there's a question there, Charles, but I agree with you completely. I think the independent regional carriers, SkyWest, Mason, Republic being the largest of those, are having real challenges around pilots. You know, if you go back and listen to some of our early shows, we've had people from Republic talking about how they've created a school to start growing their own pilots. Mesa and SkyWest may be doing something similar. But right now, pilots in the U.S. are a challenge in terms of getting enough. And the big airlines are hiring out of the regionals, just like you say. And the regionals have a fairly high threshold in terms of experience requirement to hire into. So I agree with you. I think we're going to have to watch this closely what it means for pilot salaries in the U.S. environment, what it means for regional pilot salaries, and just availability. All the schools hiring and training can't quite produce enough pilots quickly enough. And yet if we have the busy summer that most airline CEOs are expecting to have. Airlines are going to have a lot of capacity. They're going to need a lot of pilots to fly those. And when they don't have them in their airline, they're going to get them from the regionals. So airlines like Southwest are seeing that. I did listen to that earnings call and I heard that trepidation in their voice in a sense. And I think you're hearing similar things out of Mesa and out of Republic as well. Good thought there, Charles, and one that we have to keep watching. Yeah, Ben, I read somewhere else that Jonathan Ornstein from Mesa was specifically critical of the pilot shortage pointing to the government for, again, getting back to the higher thresholds for training and the like. But, you know, that kind of leaves out the impact of COVID and the clearing out of many people off payrolls uh, and many early retirements of pilots. So that certainly sped things up. But um the training requirements are going to make it more and more difficult for regionals and there's got to be a solution coming pretty soon. Well, maybe Jonathan will come on the show and tell us why he thinks that's the case. There there we go. (laughs) And then uh, Ben, Matt from Rochester sent up another good question. Uh, I recently read that British Airways had an unfortunate situation with one of its planes being damaged while in Cape Town, South Africa. A door was ripped off while pushing the airplane back from a loading bridge. It seems a lot easier to deal with maintenance issues when an airplane is at a hub, but how do airlines deal with stuff like this when it's at a remote station? Do they send a team of their own mechanics and spare parts to deal with it, or does a manufacturer like Boeing or Airbus have a service network that can be tapped into? Great question, Matt. Now, the specific situation you talked about here was a very serious issue. A door being ripped off is likely going to need, obviously, more resource to get that thing fixed. Now, South Africa has a lot of mechanics and has a lot of big planes flying in and out of it. So there may be plenty of resource there. They may need specific parts that they're going to have to fly in, or they may be able to ferry the plane without passengers in some particular way to get the plane back to a place where British Airways could do it. But getting to your specific question, airlines tend to have maintenance bases, meaning places where they hire mechanics and places where they have reasonable spare parts inventory and things. And aircraft schedulers make sure that every airplane in the system passes through one of those maintenance bases every couple days with enough time for mechanics to be able to work on the plane. And that's the normal kind of way that airlines deal with what they call line maintenance, maintenance, you know, as the plane is flying, as opposed to the heavy maintenance when the plane's taken out of service for a while and serviced. In a case where it's not a maintenance base and Cape Town is not a maintenance base for British Airways, They can handle that in a couple of ways. They, in some unresourced places, they may actually send a mechanic with the plane. That is less common, but if they really believe there's no one at this place that could help us if we have any kind of problem with the plane, so we'll send an experienced mechanic and take a seat out of inventory. And at some under-resources places, airlines will do that. 
Typically, though, they have an on-call contractor at each place, which could be another airline. It could be South African Airways in Cape Town, for example, who flies a lot of Boeing airplanes and has a lot of expertise in fixing those airplanes. Um, it could be a third-party provider like a Swiss Port or a Menzies Aviation, or it could be just an at-airport maintenance company. But an airport will sign an on-call where they get paid a very small retainer, and but when the airlines need them, they call them and they can dispatch someone there. Now, for a door being ripped off, it's probably a more serious thing. But if it's something like a blown tire that's got to be repaired or something relatively small that a single or pair of mechanics could take care of, they use that on-call maintenance piece. And most of the time that works. When a door gets ripped off by a jet bridge, that airplane's going to be on the ground for a while, almost no matter where it happens. Even if that happened in Heathrow, that plane's not going to move for a while, and at least people can get off and maybe get on another airplane. So the fact that that happened in Cape Town probably wasn't the easiest thing for British Airways, but it probably wasn't the worst either, because again, a lot of competency there, a lot of Boeing airplanes go there. I'm sure they had an on-call maintenance provider, whether that maintenance provider could have done enough or whether ultimately British Airways had to send their own mechanics and have Airbus ship parts there or Boeing ship parts there. That's probably what was needed in that case. Hope that helps, Matt. Chris, we're in the final stretch and it's time for Finer Wine. You can take this one. It's from Valerie in High Point, North Carolina. I traveled to Cameroon two weeks ago and I am still very upset about having to pay $400 in baggage fees. I was prepared to pay the required $200 for the extra bag, but United Airlines told me that since the extra bag was 11 pounds overweight, 50 plus 11 equals 61 pounds in total, I had to pay an additional $200. That was unexpected and hard on me financially. I asked them, why don't they charge per pound instead of having people pay as if one extra pound was a separate bag of 50 pounds? They say it in their policy, but in my opinion, it's a very crooked policy, not very different from stealing from customers. What do you think, Chris? Well, after I got admonished by Kevin Stamla for how I handle these, I'm giving it a second thought. But this is a big fat wine. The policy's published. Valerie was able to see how much the extra bag fee was. She knew it was $200. She knew there was a $50 weight limit. And so either you keep it to 50 pounds and uh, pack accordingly, or if you're going to pack more, pack an extra suitcase and pay the pay to take a hundred pounds of goods and luggage and the $400. So I think this is a wine and Valerie, I'm sorry you're frustrated, but uh, again, you got to read the rules. I agree with that, Chris, you know, the best travel advice that I ever read was when you travel, you should bring half the clothes and twice the money. And that <laughs> always works. <laughs> and I realize not everybody can do that. But uh, a 61-pound bag is a heavy bag, and it doesn't surprise me that the airline would charge a lot for that. You know, in other places where people check in two bags and one of them's 52 and one of them's 45, you can see people at the check-in or at the ticket counter resorting and taking things from the heavier bag and putting them in the lighter one so that the two can each be 50 pounds. And that's, that's crazy too, but that's the way airlines do it now. It's been uh, almost 20 years since we took my family to Greece for the first time and with my in-laws, but we still laugh that my mother-in-law overpacked. And as we're trying to repack her, there was a black suit in her suitcase. And my wife's like, what is this for? And my mother-in-law said, in case someone dies, I'll have a funeral outfit. And so, you know, we, we need to be reminded of the overpacking lesson once in a while at the Chimes household. So as we wrap, it's time for shout outs. And I want to give a shout out to the folks at Milwaukee Mitchell Airport. Only a week after posting a photo on Facebook of a teddy bear that was found at the airport, the owner of Teddy has been found, and thanks to more than 7,000 shares of the photo by other travelers uh, coming through of Milwaukee Mitchell. The bear is a gift from the local children's hospital to patients recovering from treatment for congenital heart defects. So we're really happy to hear that Teddy and his owner are reunited. 
That's a wonderful shout out, Chris. Mine is going to be much more airline related, which is my shout out goes to Bill Frankie of Indigo Partners and the primary owner of Frontier. Whether or not the Frontier Spirit merger happens or not, Bill Frankie at 84 years old is clearly one of the biggest players in the airline space. And throughout a very long career in the airlines, from being the CEO of America West and the owner of Spirit at one point and other airlines around the world, he's had a really canny ability to understand what world markets need, what world capacity needs, been able to time things very, very well. And it's just terrific to see someone who has been able to take an industry that has befuddled a lot of people and confused a lot of people and lost a lot of people money and found a way to both run good airlines and make good money from this industry. So my shout out goes to Bill for keeping it going. He's clearly had a bigger impact than people uh, can fully appreciate. That's exactly right. It'd be nice to get him on the show too, wouldn't it, Chris? Yep. yep. <laughs> well, thanks everyone. Have a great week. And thanks for listening to Airlines Confidential. Have a good week, guys. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.